Hello and welcome to Bellhaven Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Weber. On today's episode, we'll be listening to PSY 352, Social Psychology with Professor Nathan Smith. I hope you listen and enjoy. So how do social psychologists interpret their findings? Well, let's look at some main underlying assumptions. We're going to start today with the theory we call naturalism. And uh, for your information, in this course we're going to ask you to be able to know what a theory is, know the definition, be able to use it in a practical sense, looking at macro-level problems, micro-level problems, and also looking at situations in your own personal life. Never in this course am I going to ask you to ascribe to or believe any particular theory, but you will be asked to be able to define it and use it. I like to think of it as a mask. You can pick up the mask of naturalism, put it on, speak through it, through the mask, uh, being able to say what someone who believed in naturalism might say, and then when you're done you take it off and put it down. It's a tool you're able to define and use, and nothing more. So, with that being said, let's take a look at naturalism. All reality is material substance, and the immaterial either does not exist or is not relevant. So naturalism is intrinsically material. Humans evolved unguided. Whatever helped our ancestors survive has been perpetuated in our species. There's this type of psychic unity of humankind which is all in quotes. All humans share the basic brain structure and results in cognitive capacities. And then the two main motives of all complex social behaviors are survival and reproductive advantage. So, what motivates all social behavior according to evolutionary psychology? So we're moving now from naturalism to EP, evolutionary psychology. So in EP, there are ultimate causes, those in the far past, such as natural selection in the environment, and then proximate causes, things that are more recent, genetics and culture. So a Christian who is not a naturalist can benefit from EP while recognizing God's part in the process of evolution. So, again, we're not asking you to ascribe to EP, I'm just asking that you be able to define it and to be able to explain it so you can demonstrate mastery over the concept. Uh, the author of the text we're using is very interested in EP and brings it up a lot. I'm probably going to bring it up less as we go through, just because it's sort of out of my realm of study and out of my realm of interest. But that being said, it is a theory that's very important. You'll need to know it, and you need to know how to be able to use it. So, uh, there are different levels of hypothesis generation. <coughs> At the most fundamental level, Excuse me. Evolution is assumed to be true, like natural law, and is not tested. At the middle level, there are many hypotheses that can be generated from the initial assumptions of EP. So an example the author gives is how people will tend to be more altruistic, more helpful if they assume others will act in kind. It's a way to explain helping behavior. So I'm going to give you a little bit of help and show you something that we're going to be doing through this course, which is look at problems in, at the macro, the micro, and the personal level. So using the, the EP view, the evolutionary psychology view, how would we look at a macro level problem? Well, let's take a well-known macro level problem, we'll, we'll say aggression between groups. 
So violence between groups can be at the nation level, could be um, at any large scale level. Well, an evolutionary psychologist might say, well, in evolutionary time, groups had to compete for limited resources in order to survive. And this competition led them to identify with their own groups and uh, be comfortable being aggressive against other groups. And this gave them the advantage of being able to compete for resources. So that's an example at the macro level. <coughs> Excuse me, at the micro level, you might look at a person eating at McDonald's. So you walk by, you see one individual eating at McDonald's, and you might say, well, the evolutionary psychologist could say, humans crave fat and sugar because those types of foods are very high in energy. They're difficult to find in the wild, and they're very important to human survival. So that person eating, eating McDonald's is doing so because in an evolutionary sense, fat and sugar will help you survive, and they crave that taste, they crave having those things in their mouth, in their body, and that's why they eat those things. So at the personal level, <clears throat> I think of my wife, and you know I have very strong loving feelings towards my wife, as many people do towards their spouses, and an evolutionary psychologist might say, well you do have these strong loving feelings, but you have these strong loving feelings because being connected to this other person will help you in the reproductive path, not only to have children, but to care for them, to raise them, and to pass your genetics on. And so if you didn't have these strong, loving feelings towards your wife, you would be less likely to have children and pass your genetics on, and really, your strong feelings, your love for another person, is really about passing on your genetic code. So, Christians, you know, uh, through marriage ceremonies and many other things, take a different view as it relates to marriage and family and love. But you can also put on the mask of the evolutionary psychologist and say, this is what this is. So what of the naturalistic view of humans? There are some main assumptions. Humans are generally self-seeking. They drive to relate to others, mainly serves these self-seeking interests. There's no basis for the inherent worth of humans, and no consistent basis for moral social behavior. I want you to think about these things, especially when we get into the CFR approach. Uh, you're going to need to be able to compare these base assumptions to the CFR approach. So why is one's view of, human, of the human condition so important? So this takes two types of life. So for researchers, it helps guide the type of questions asked and the interpretations made of the data. And one thing you'll learn about research uh, as you go through your career or as you go through maybe this course and the rest of your studies is that research is expensive and time-consuming. It takes a lot of money and a lot of time. And so you can't study everything in the world you want to study. You have to narrow down what you study. And one of the ways you narrow down what you study is by the questions you ask. And so you'll find that the questions that people ask drive their research. And so this underlying view of the human condition is very important in driving the research done by, uh, by folks with a Christian background, folks with all kinds of different backgrounds. So that's from the research perspective and the everyday life perspective. 
Our view of the human condition affects how we expect others to act and our interpretations of social behavior. I'm sure you can think of examples of this in everyday life, and you will need to as we move throughout the course. So Christian ideas and a scientific understanding of social interaction. <clears throat> in general, scientists disregard any potential contribution of religious perspectives to the scientific endeavor. Science is generally thought to discover facts, while religion yields values. <clears throat> Excuse me. Within Christian circles, there's a lot of disagreement about whether and how science and faith can be integrated. Again, this is not a course that's going to be able to answer those questions for you. A lot of questions about faith and science are going to be needed are need going to need to be looked at by you, along with pastors and theological um, individuals, teachers and elders, in addition to scientists. But this is a question outside of the realm of the course. In this text, we explore how Christian faith and the science of social psychology can inform one another. So the baseline understanding of the course is that science and Christianity can coexist, and do coexist in many individuals, myself included, many people in the working world, many people in the academic world. And uh, we have found that to be true. Although, my hope is that you could, you could uh, take the opposite opinion that the two things should never be mixed and still be able to be successful in this course by being able to use the masks that you view different theories through. So let's look at some Christian ideas in social psychology. Uh, for, for this understanding, they must be on psychology's terms, that is, using the empirical approach. And here in this uh, course, we're going to be using the, the uh, empirical approach, and we're going to go from the understanding that a Christian can use the empirical approach effectively. So let's start with the Christian view of personhood, and then each chapter will explore how one can do the following based on the Christian view, and that is generate hypotheses and explain the results. So that is to say, of all of the steps of the scientific process, uh, they each can be affected by Christian faith and Christian witness, but the ones where it's most important, or most obvious, I guess, will be in generating hypotheses and explaining the results. So when you're making a list of materials used in the lab, you can do that to the best of your abilities in a Christian way, but it's sort of the list of materials, there's not a lot of space for Christianity to inform it. It's just a list of what's being used. Bunsen burners and beakers and glassware and chemicals, etc. if you're in a chemistry course. <clears throat> Whereas generating hypotheses and explaining the results can have a lot of space for Christianity to inform them. So let's continue that thought. So we need to recognize the limitations of this and all other approaches, and this is again something we're going to be doing throughout. Part of, um, part of putting yourself into each theory is seeing what's the best of it and what is the weakest of it and how it can be used in different circumstances. So recognize that this is just one way of integrating and be careful, this is a very important point, be careful that we do not assume that all that we observe is what is natural. That is, that a part of the way we are, uh, the part of the way is what we just are instead of a result of brokenness and sin. I think of this in terms of um, 
I guess in terms the most obvious is in terms of racism. It's easy just to say, well, racism is everywhere, so racism is natural, and that's just the way it is. And I'm not sure that's the right way to look at that. Um, a, a just as good way to look at that is to say this is a part of the way we are in that we are broken and sinful human beings and this is the result of the fall. All of these negative things, it's not just natural how it is, but it is not how the world was intended to be and is not how the world can be.